0: and sits at the right hand of god the father almighty from thence he will come to judge the living and the dead i believe in the holy spirit the holy christian church the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting amen and the catechism memory work is more from the table of duty so this is what hears their pastors anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Galatians 6, 6 6-7. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's evening prayer, I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day. And I pray that you would forgive me all my sins where I have done wrong and graciously keep me this night. For into your hands I commend myself. My body and soul and all things, let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue on with the Gospel of Mark. We didn't actually really start talking about Mark yet, uh, the text of Mark, that is. Um, Last week we talked about some main themes and who Mark was. And uh, one more introductory note that I want to give here as we get started with this. We'll leave the themes up there for now, I think, but uh, one more kind of thing I wanted to do here as we get started is give a little bit of an outline to the book of Mark. So just kind of, so we have a general direction of where we're going here. Um, and we'll we'll just do a three-part outline. So the uh, first section of Mark really is through uh, chapter one, of course, is where we start. Um, and this is going to go through eight verse, chapter eight verse thirty, verse thirty. And then section two, I mean eight thirty one, chapter eight, kind of divides a little bit, um, through chapter 10, and then section 3 is going to be chapters 11 through 16, 11 through 16. Now in chapter, in uh, the first section, in section uh, 1, chapters 1 through 8, 8 verse 30, uh, this is going to be Jesus' uh, Galilean ministry, so um, we'll see in chapter 1, but we're, it, it does not take long for Mark to introduce the book. Um, he introduces the book very quickly and then basically gets right into the ministry of Jesus. Um, at, we, have, we have some stuff with John the Baptist and then he gets right into the ministry of Jesus. And the, one of the big questions in Mark, right, is, is who is Jesus, right? Who is Jesus? And we talked last week about this theme of the, being the Son of God and how he came with authority. And uh, we're going to get a lot of that stuff here in this first section in the Galilean ministry, and also one of the themes that uh, Mark has with the uh, this being a Gentile audience or a Gentilic audience that Mark is writing to, this is uh, this first section really has to do in some sense with the Gentile reaction to Jesus. So we really don't get a lot about about the Jews uh, in we get some stuff, but not a ton about the Jews in this first section. It's really about what the Gentiles, how the Gentiles are reacting to Jesus in his Galilean ministry. in this uh, second section, um, eight thirty one verses uh, or through chapter ten um in eight thirty one what happens is that Jesus uh, begins, he gives a prophecy where he talks about his death and resurrection. and this is really where he turns toward the toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, right? so um, in the Gospel of Luke, there's a verse I can't remember. What verse it is exactly, but in the Gospel of Luke, it says that Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem, and that's kind of a turning point in the book. You kind of get the same thing here in Mark, where Jesus starts to go toward the cross, and the tone of things kind of changes. And in this smaller section, um, 8 verse 31 through chapter 10, a lot of what we have here is Jesus' uh, discussion specifically with the disciples, so this is, the first The first one's kind of the Gentiles, right? And then the, the second section is more about how the disciples are confused about who Jesus is and are figuring out who Jesus is. So uh, that'll be something that comes up there. All right, and then um, chapters 11 through 16, you might have guessed, this is uh, really, whole, this is basically Holy Week. It's when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and then... Um, From chapters 11 to 16 is all about his time in Jerusalem during Holy Week, and 16 is his resurrection. Right, so we get the 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 Passion account is kind of 14 through 14, 15, and then and then 16 is the resurrection. So uh, that's the general outline of Mark. Um, I find it helpful to have outlines at the beginning outset of studying a book because then you kind of know where you are within the book, and you also know the overall message of the book, right? So we never want to miss the forest for the the trees, right? So this is, in some sense, the forest. All right. Any any questions on that or anything that we talked about last week before we dive into chapter one? All right. All right, so uh, let's just dive into chapter one here. And uh, chapter... uh, I'm going to try to not take... um, forever to get through each chapter. Well, we'll probably do about a chapter a week. We'll see. But um, chapter one is a little bit... It is actually a, a pretty lengthy chapter. It's 45 verses. So it'll probably take us a couple weeks to get through chapter one. And there's also a lot of introductory material here. Also, I apologize if I like can't look at you because I kind of can't see anything right now. But um, we'll, we'll try our best here. All right. So... Um, chapter, chapter one, verse one begins this way, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And that's basically the introduction to the book, right? Um, and this is really Mark's only commentary in the book. So if you read some of the other gospels and you read, um, like John, for instance, does this a lot, or if you read a lot of other books in the Bible, like um, Moses does this a lot too in the, um historical books that, that he writes in the first five books of the Bible, Moses will give kind of side comments throughout or give a little bit of commentary uh, here and there describing, you know, what's going on, where you get more of the author's perspective. Mark basically doesn't give any of his own perspective, right? Mark uh, gives, is is very much about as we talked about last week with this term immediately, right? It's very much about what Jesus does and what happens. It's not about, it's not even about what Jesus says, right? There's a lot of things um, we'll see in chapter one, some of this that Jesus in other gospels, he says things that Mark doesn't record because Mark cares about what happens, right? It's, it's very action focused. All right. But, um, really this first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the only commentary that Mark gives, right? Is that he says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, what's interesting, um, I'm gonna get a little nerdy here. The Greek here is pretty odd. And uh, the Greek in Mark's really not that hard normally, but this is a very strange construction, and the thing that's strange about it is that it's not really a sentence. Now, we make it kind of a sentence in English by adding this uh, the at the, be- at the beginning. But that's not there in the original Greek. It's not there in the original language. So the, the Greek actually just says arche, which is the word for beginning or source, if you will. And it just says... Um, Arche to U-A-G-E-L-I-U. So uh, the it just says beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, source of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's all it says. And I think what's going on there is a couple of things. One, that word R-K, that word beginning, that should sound uh, fairly familiar to you for the beginning of books, right? Because we have in Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then, Uh, In John's gospel, he begins his gospel the same way, Um, in the beginning was the word, John says, right? And here, Mark, in some ways, is better than John because he really focuses on that word beginning. He just says, beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what that exactly means, I mean, no commentators really agree on this, right? Um, But... I think a couple things we could point out is that Mark here, one of the themes he's going to really focus in on throughout his book is that this Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is partly that Jesus is the Son of God. And we mentioned that last week that the Old Testament, when it prophesies the Messiah, it's never exactly clear that the messiah is going to be the son of god right it's very clear that there is going to be a messiah and that the, he's going to be born out of this certain line right this he's going to be the certain seed and that he's going to do certain things and he's going to suffer for the sin of the world and that he's going to crush the serpent's head and that he's going to do all this all these things to forgive sins and to save to save the world but in some ways The thing that's a surprise in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, is that God sends his own son to be this Messiah. And then when you read that back into the Old Testament, it makes total sense. Right? Um, And we can almost see that uh, in the Old Testament when we're reading it back. Um, But for the disciples, it seems that they weren't expecting this. They were expecting a Messiah and their faithful people but they are actually a little bit in shock that it's the son of God, right? They don't really, uh, they didn't really expect it to be a person of the Holy Trinity, right? And uh, Mark makes this very clear, right? Mark's gospel makes this very clear that in fact, this is the son of God. And so when he says beginning of the gospel, the, and the gospel is good news, right? That's what the word gospel means. And maybe we should just translate it that way beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I almost wonder if it should be like an equal sign there, right? Like the beginning of the good news of Jesus is that he is the Son of God. I almost think that's how it reads. The other thing that I think is possibly going on here, these are my two theories, but again, it's, I mean, it's an unclear passage in some ways, is that, the thing that Mark is going to talk about immediately after when he says this, and it's connected in this way, right? Because he says in, ver- in verse 2, as it is written in the prophets, so as if like he's going to use this Old Testament passage to prove what he just said, is John the Baptist baptizing. And then, and then immediately after that, Jesus being baptized, and we'll talk about one of the things that Mark points out in John's baptism that's different than the other gospels here in a second um, with the remission of sins or, or confessing, uh, confessing their sins. And I, I think one of the things that's going on here with this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is that the good news of Jesus Christ for Mark is directly connected to baptism and to the baptism of Jesus, right? That the, in some ways, the so- if you take take beginning as this idea, RK doesn't necessarily have to mean like a beginning in time. RK, that, that word can also mean like the, if you will, like the fountain source, right? That's, um, or the, uh, what would be another way to say it? Like, I guess source is a good word, but it, it's not necessarily like beginning in sense of time. It can also be beginning in the sense of like where does where does something find its origin? That's a that's the word I was looking for. It's origination, right? It's like the word genesis in in Hebrew, right? Um, that you have the the genesis of something, right? So what's the genesis of the good news of Jesus and the life of the Christian? In some ways, it's the baptism, right? The baptism is our identity. Baptism is, and we talked about this when we talked about baptism. Baptism is where we find our source of who we are, right? As children of God. And so um, it's kind of interesting that he does this um, beginning of the good news of Jesus, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you right um, and the the maybe the third thing that's going on here just in in terms of more of a plain reading is that the ministry of Jesus the good news about Jesus uh, finds its source also in the the Old Testament right and in, and in, and, it, and it kind of in this final Old Testament prophet of John the Baptist who we're going to talk about in just a second. So um, anyway, it's a very interesting verse, 1-1. I don't want to spend too long on one verse, but um, it is a very weird verse. It's probably the weirdest verse in Mark, so it's probably worth spending a little bit of time on. But any, uh, any questions on, on 1-1 before we continue on? There. All right. All right, so then um, as we go on again, like I said, this is going to be the uh, baptism, John baptizing in the wilderness um, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight.? Right? And um, of course, that's from uh, Isaiah. Now that's a great Advent passage. We're coming up on Advent here. Now, what's missing here before we go on? So John's going to come baptizing in the wilderness. Camel's hair, locusts, all that stuff. And then he's going to baptize Jesus. What's missing? It's almost too obvious. In the life of Jesus, what's his missing? Birth. His birth. Jesus isn't born here, right? Um, his birth is recorded in Matthew and in Luke. And then John 1 is about his birth, right? But it's very theological. It's not a historical account. Um, but Mark doesn't include the birth. Right? And it, it's an interesting thing. So we talked about this kind of problem of the Gospels last week, the synoptic problem, and how um, most of the stuff that's included in Mark is also included in Matthew and or Luke. How Mark is much shorter. And then John has kind of unique material. But uh, one of the things that's interesting when you do that synoptic problem work, when you compare the Gospels, is that there's really only two things that are in all four Gospels. And one of them is what you'd expect. One of them is Holy Week, right? Jesus basically coming in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, some, and then some level of his uh, arrest, betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, or trial, crucifixion, and then and then resurrection. That's in all four Gospels. That's And that is the central, if you think about the word gospel, right, that is the central good news. Jesus' death and resurrection for the salvation of the world. Anyone have a guess as to what the other thing is that's included in all four Gospels? Transfiguration. It's not the transfiguration. Baptism. Nope, not the baptism. Those are also really important. You would think it'd be something like that. It's not even his birth, right? You'd think it'd be his birth. It's the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000, yeah. So um, kind of an interesting thing. And when we get there, maybe we'll talk about why that passage is so important that it's included in all four Gospels. Um, I mean, I think it is important. I'm not sure if it's as important as his baptism, transfiguration, or his birth, but um, in a theological sense, but but the Gospel writers find it all to be very important. So anyway, just a fun fact. So yeah, Mark doesn't include his birth. Um, but again, if you think about a couple of the themes that we've talked about, it makes sense because one, Mark is focused on the action of Jesus showing who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't do a lot in his birth, right? He's just born. That's all he does. He just lays there. Crying, right, yeah. He just, he's just there, right? Um, And none of the Gospels, except for Luke, include anything about his childhood, right? Luke includes the one story about when he wanders off in the temple. Um, And that's because Luke is all about the temple and about worship and all this stuff. But um, none none of the Gospels really include anything about his childhood. But the Gospel of Mark wants to show who Jesus is by his actions, right? So it's kind of natural it doesn't include his birth. And then second, it's to a Gentile audience. And... His birth, in, in one sense, is more important to a Jewish audience because it's tying it to the Old Testament, right? His birth shows that he's the promised Messiah. And to a Gentile audience, I mean, yes, when you when you figure out who he is and then you go, can you, you read him back into the Old Testament, the Old Testament becomes really cool. Like, I'm a Gentile. I love the Old Testament, right? But um, to a Gentile audience, first hearing the gospel, um in one sense, don't hear this the wrong way, but in one sense, the whole Old Testament and the Messianic line isn't as important, right? As if you're going to try to convince a Jew to believe in Jesus. you need to. That's why Matthew, who's writing to Jews, Matthew starts with a genealogy because they care about the genealogy, right? Mark's writing to Gentiles, they don't really care about genealogies. He doesn't have a genealogy, right? He wants to show who Jesus is by his actions, so... Um, but this is also kind of why we need different, the different gospels too, right? Like this is, I think why God gave us different gospels is to, to kind of piece these things together, give us different emphases. All right. So then let's, uh, get into this, uh, John the Baptist thing. So, um, he does quote the Old Testament though. So, um, to balance out what I just said, Mark, Mark isn't afraid to quote the Old Testament, but, he does so in a much more succinct way, right? He just gives this quote, behold, I will send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way before you, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And uh, that's from, well, it's from Malachi chapter three and then from Isaiah chapter 40 uh, combined. And it is true that the the Old Testament is important um, for this reason, right? That what what is faith, Faith is trust. Why do you trust someone? Because they show themselves trustworthy. Mark is going to be about showing Jesus trustworthy. But part of the idea of giving an Old Testament quote here is that Mark is showing that, okay, this thing was promised in the Old Testament. Now there's this prophet that's going to fulfill that here, right? And so you can have faith in this, what's going on here, faith in this prophet and John. Okay. And and John really is just as a, a side note, um, John is this connection between the Old and New Testament, right? John is the he's kind of the last Old Testament prophet and the and the first New Testament prophet, right? If you if you want to think about it that way, um, he's the the last Old Testament prophet who, um, I mean, there's been a silence of the prophets and then he comes on scene, and he's doing this baptism or this washing it's a little bit different than the old testament washings but it's not quite full out new new testament baptism yet and we'll talk about that in just a second so he's kind of this connecting point right he's preparing the way of the lord he's the final the final stretch right he's mile 25 on the marathon he's he's kind of preparing for the the finish line when jesus is going to get here okay and that's what that old testament promise is about right prepare the way of the lord and make his path straight John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, this is kind of interesting because the other Gospels don't include this phrase for the remission of sins. And I I promise I'm not going to try and do like constant Gospel comparison, but but some of these things I just find interesting. Um, The general outline we get in in the Gospels, and I think it's here too, it's just a little bit different is that John's, bap- so where does baptism comes from? Bap- baptism comes from ritual washings in the Old Testament. That's what, ba- the word baptism just means to wash, right? And when there are Jews washing, doing there's a prophet doing washing of other Jews here, that it's a ritual washing, right? Now, that was for cleanliness in the Old Testament. Now here, John says it's different. It's for repentance. And that's the focus of, um, of John's baptism in the other Gospels. And then later on here, we're gonna hear that um, Jesus is gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? And then that that is ultimately fulfilled at Pentecost. And then at Pentecost, it becomes very clear when Peter says, be baptized, every one of you, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins. This gift is for you and your children. That when we, we go kind of from a ritual washing for cleanliness to a baptism for repentance, to show the repentance of sins, and then at, at after Pentecost, right, and with Jesus, and there's it's kind of a slow transition, right? So there's always these questions about, what about someone who, is, who received John's baptism? Do they need to get baptized again after Pentecost? There, there's these weird questions there, but... Um, you have this kind of three-step process: cleanliness, repentance, and then forgiveness. That's how baptism, in a way, changes in, in, into the New Testament. Now, what's interesting is that John, uh, in in Mark's Gospel here, it says that he's baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Right. So um, he kind of he's kind of getting ahead of himself here in some ways, um, but we. Uh, I, I I mean I think we should say that this is true, right? There is a sense in which, with the repentance that these people are bringing, their their sins are being forgiven. Now maybe it's not the same exact forgiveness of sins that is talked about later on with baptism, right? Um, because normally we would make that distinction. And and in, in one sense, right, Mark does clarify in verse eight when he says. That John, he quotes John, he says, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you, talking about Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, this is only a water baptism, right? And think about the catechism, right? What is, the catechism distinguishes between Christian baptism and water baptism when when it says, uh, obviously as Christians, we use water, just a water baptism, but um, how can baptism do such great things? Not just the water only, but the word of God and then with the water does these things, right? So when the word of God is applied after, and and what's the institution of Christian, of the kind of full Christian baptism is Matthew 28, right? When Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, he says, therefore go and baptize, right? That command had not been given yet. So this is a different kind of baptism, but he, did, he still does say it has includes something about the remission of sin. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So Barb. At that point John is, is um, trying to gain the attention of the people by right. planting them in the water. So right. It's a symbolism more. Yeah, it is more of a symbolic baptism, okay. right? It's like the uh the Baptist like never kept reading. Like, you know, past, they like stopped at Matthew 27 and then get to Matthew 28 or something. That's, that's kind of a problem. Um, yeah, it, it is more of a symbolic baptism in this sense, yeah. All right, um, so who's he baptizing? Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem, so basically Jews, right? That's what Jewish means is Judean. That's the word in Greek, eudaios, uh, the Jewish people. The people from Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, um, Matthew, in here, Matthew here, he includes the fact that the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, also come and are arguing with him about the baptism, right? And about Jesus. Now, we don't get that here because, again, this is to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. But Matthew being to a Jewish audience includes the fact that some of their, he's baptizing Jews, but then some of the the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, they were arguing with him. So uh, again, kind of interesting when you compare here, Mark doesn't care about those details. All right. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his wa- waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. All right, so um I want to go through some some of these things. But first of all, I want to start by saying that it is common in the Bible for prophets to act out their prophecies. Wow, I can I can see you all now. The sun would be on a cloud. Um, I feel like I can finally see. Uh, it's it's very common for prophets to act out their prophecy, right? So um, Ezekiel is my favorite with this because he has to do a bunch of crazy stuff. For instance, um, in Ezekiel 4, he has to lie down on on one side uh, for like 300 some days, like 340 days or something, to show the iniquity of the Israelites, the people in Israel, the southern kingdom, and no, the northern kingdom, excuse me. And then um, he has to turn over and lie on his other side for like 40 more days to show the iniquity of the people of Judah. And he has to like eat certain things during this time and and cook certain things and It's like a whole weird thing. And Ezekiel has to do lots of stuff like this during the course of his prophesying. Um, Jeremiah does the same thing, right? When Jeremiah talks about the potter and the clay, he has to go down to the potter's house. And like, it's like a, I don't know. um, You know, normally traditional LCMS pastors like myself get mad about, not mad, but are skeptical of like object lessons and sermons. Like we don't do a lot with object lessons, you know, but the Old Testament prophets did. <laughs> they, they liked object lessons. So it makes me question, maybe I should, shouldn't be so against object lessons. But anyway, the, um, the prophets like to act things out, right? And sometimes, I mean, they're commanded to by God sometimes. So um, I, I really think there's no reason to think that John wasn't commanded to do these things by God. He might've been, maybe he wasn't, but um, so he acts this out too. So I think because he's acting something out here clearly by wearing weird clothes and and eating weird things is that we should probably pay attention to the details a little bit, right? So um, I think the camel's hair, camel's hair is obviously a very rough thing to wear, right? And it was common um, to show repentance in the Old Testament that people would wear what? Sackcloth and ashes, right? Put on sackcloth and ashes. I'm wondering if camel's hair is maybe like sackcloth on steroids, right? That it's like an even more, it's like another level of uncomfortable. I mean, I'm not sure. I've never worn camel's hair. never worn sackcloth either. Um, But um, it's something akin to that, right? It's kind of this idea is that he's wearing um, sackcloth, work he's wearing camel's hair and and why would he do that because he's preaching repentance right that's what he's preaching on it's a topic of the sermon so um, he's preaching repentance the leather belt is interesting i was doing some reading on this so there's actually um, so what's a belt in in the bible times that the men would wear is is a girdle right so they you know you'd have a tunic and then Sometimes you'd have to to gird your loins, right? If you wanted to walk somewhere without your tunic getting in the way, if you had to run, right? So there's kind of a military idea, and that's what the belt was really for—a belt or a, a girdle, right, as they would call it. Um, not not a girdle of like that women would wear in the 1920s, not not that kind of girdle, right? um, but uh, that's what it's called, right? That's one thing. I don't know. I don't know these things, but I just know weird Bible stuff. So um, the there's actually a lot of verses about this in the Bible, and most of the time um, there's one verse about a, a le- another leather belt in the Old Testament, and that's with. Um, let me see here. Yeah, that's with Elijah. Yeah, Elijah also had to wear a leather belt, and then but all the other belts or the girdles of the the prophets. Um, a bunch of them are in Revelation, and they're about they're about Jesus wearing a fine linen girdle uh, with with jewels on it, right? And then some of the other prophets also prophesy this these fine linen. Um, oh, actually, some of the priests, the high, the high priest would wear like this fine linen, like very soft, very embroidered, um, very nice kind of is almost a vestment of sorts, right? And so the leather is a, a big contrast to that. The leather is like this kind of, it's like cheap and easy and like very sturdy um, type of material, right? And I, th- I think what this shows is that one, th- what John is preaching is not a, um, this isn't like, the the picture of heaven, the end times, um, Christ has become victorious and won. This is like wartime, ready-to-fight time, right? That's what he's preaching. He's not preaching um, – he's not necessarily preaching about, like, heaven yet. He's preaching about repentance, right? And the other thing is, like, the idea of readiness, right? So if you think about having to gird up the loins to go out to war, and he's doing this with a very practical leather, right – um, the kind of man's material, this is this idea of readiness. And you get that with, uh, where else do you get readiness in the Bible? You get that in the Passover, right? That you're supposed to have everything strapped up. You're supposed to have your sandals on your feet and you're supposed to eat quickly and get ready to go, right? Um, and and this is kind of a, in, in one sense, this story is kind of a pre-Passover thing, right? Because what's gonna happen next, uh, Jesus is gonna be baptized and then he's gonna go into his 40 days of wilderness wandering. So there is some connections to Passover here, and I kind of wonder if that that leather belt is kind of this Passover type garment, in a sense. All right, so that's the leather belt, um, and then the diet of locust and honey, again, is some of the same themes there. That locust and honey require no preparation, right? It's a it's a fast meal. And the other thing about locust and honey, aside from the readiness, is that it's completely dependent on God to provide, right? I mean, you can go out and search for them, of course, but uh, those are things that just kind of show up in the wilderness. So John is completely dependent on God to provide his meals, right? He's not really hunting. He's not growing any food. Um, he's not eating. He's not, he didn't take grains with him or anything like that. Um, it's, it's just purely what is like found in nature, right? What's, uh, what's that called foraging? It's, it's all foraging, right? It's not, and gathering, it's not, it's not hunting and it's not agricultural. Um, so, um, I think that's, I think that's what's going on with those different things that he's wearing and doing and eating, right? And it goes along with this sermon. It's like I said, it's kind of like an object lesson. All right, we're really speeding along here. We're, we're almost to verse six. No, we're, no we just did verse we We're at verse seven. All right, and he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All right, so um, verse seven there, um, we have uh, this idea of the sandal strap. This is again something worth paying attention to. You do have the theme of feet throughout Scripture. So um, Isaiah says, "Blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news, right?" And who's ulti- and that goes back to the gospel, right? This is the good news of Jesus Christ. So um, he kind of he points out Jesus' feet specifically. I think he's refer- he already quoted Isaiah, so he obviously knows Isaiah. I think he's kind of referencing um, Isaiah there. And, and then also, of course, what's the surprise about Jesus? Now, this is only in John's gospel, but uh, one of the surprises about Jesus is that he, st- John says, I'm not worthy to untie a sandal strap, but then what does Jesus go and do? He washes his disciples' feet, right? Um, so that kind of authority as a servant theme that we talked about uh, before. Okay. Um, yeah, we already talked about the distinctions between the baptism and the uh the word of God in it with the water, baptized with the Holy Spirit, um, and the connection to Pentecost there. All right, so um, verses uh, 9 through 11 here, John baptizes Jesus. Now, this is, um, if you're watching a movie, right, and then someone says something uh, that's kind of, ambiguous but it's like a foreshadowing and then it and then there's a, a jump cut to the next scene and then there's a person that's focused in on right in the next frame and then that, that person in that frame has to do with what was just foreshadowed. You know you ever see that in movies? You know what I'm talking about? Okay that's like that's exactly what's happening here. John Mark Mark says um quoting John there's one coming who's mightier than I, so on and so forth. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It came to pass that in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, okay? So who is it that's mightier than John, that John's not worthy to untie his sandal trap who's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit? Oh, by the way, it came to pass in those days that this guy named Jesus showed up, right? It's a, it's like a jump cut, and it's, it's showing that, that it's like a... It's a literary thing, right? You can kind of see what I'm talking about. Uh, Jesus came and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And notice here, Mark um, does not include any of the details that Matthew or Luke includes about about the baptism, right? There's none of this conversation between Jesus and John. There's none of this debate about John not being worthy to baptize him. Um, Anything like that. Jesus showed up, verse 10, and immediately, this is our first immediately, right? So we got to count. We'll try and keep count. There's like 36 of them, right? So we're up to one now. Um, Immediately, coming up out of the water, unless I already missed one. Did I miss one yet? I don't think so. All right. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Then a voice from heaven came from heaven said, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All right. I like that Mark here uses this term, they the heavens were parting. Because what the baptism of Jesus is, is a unveiling. This is this is what the term um, revelation means. Revelation is a unveiling, right? So a revelation is like when the groom lifts the veil off the bride and sees what she looks like on her wedding day, right? This is an unveiling or a parting, right? An opening up of who God is, of the Trinity, right? So the Old Testament does teach the Trinity. Don't get me wrong. The Old Testament teaches the Trinity, but the Trinity be, does become much clearer in the New Testament, right? The New Testament gives us the fuller revelation of the Trinity, and the baptism of Jesus is one of the first places we see that, right? There's this opening up of the heavens, and what happens when the heavens open up? The Spirit descends on the dove, or the Spirit descends like a dove on the Son, and the Father speaks and says, this is my Son, right? Which, if someone says, this is my Son, what does that mean? It means he's the Father, right? And if the if father says, this is my son, what does that mean about the son? It means it's his son, right? So you get the father and the son. They define each other, right? The relationship is what is constitutive of the of their roles as father and son, right? And then the spirit descends like a dove and the voice comes from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is going to bookend the transfiguration when the transfiguration comes God is going to open up the heavens again and say, The Father is going to say, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Right? And um, this is also the first place. Well, the, it's actually the second place, right? Because we already had the, the RK, the source of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then here again, the Father says, This is my Son, the Son of God. Right? And by the way, he's the Messiah, right? He's the one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who John was preparing the way for, right? He's the Messiah. All right. Then our second immediately, verse 12. What time is it? Okay, 10 minutes. Number two. Immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him. Okay, so there's kind of this interesting thing about, um, well, let's start with the immediately. Okay, so immediately the spirit drives him into the wilderness. When Whenever we think about baptism, we should also think about wilderness in this way. Um, Jesus' life gives us the pattern for our baptism, right, for our life of faith. When Jesus is baptized, he's baptized, as the Gospel of Matthew says, to fulfill all righteousness, right? He lives the life that we should live, and he baptizes, he's baptized because, uh, he was supposed, he took on the life that we should live and he's baptized in some sense in our place, right? So that when we're baptized, we're baptized in his baptism, right? The way I describe this sometimes is if you think about Jesus in the water, um, he is putting his righteousness out into the water and absorbing our sin. And when we're baptized, we're putting our sin into the water for him to absorb and we're absorbing his righteousness, right? That's kind of the image of Jesus being baptized and us being baptized, All right, so that's the idea of baptism. So Jesus' baptism and our baptism are connected. When Jesus is baptized, he is driven into the wilderness to fight the devil. That's the same thing with us, right? When we're baptized, that means that we're members of God's family now, which is great, right, wonderful. But it also means the devil hates us even more now, right? And now we have to live in this world on our way to heaven, Right on our way to the Promised Land, where we're going to be wandering in the wilderness of the world, right? As as baptized children of God, and so there's this pattern, right? Of and this goes back to the Passover too, right? The the, the Israelites are taken through the the their baptism in the Red Sea, if you will, and then they have to wander in the wilderness before they reach the Promised Land. So this is kind of the pattern of baptism is you're baptized in the water. And then you wander in the wilderness before you reach the promised land. Okay, so this happens to Jesus. Now, what's interesting is that the Spirit drives him. Okay, so the Spirit descends on him, and then the Spirit kind of drives him somewhere. And then um, later on, at his crucifixion, what's going to happen? He's going to give out the Spirit, right? And then whenever he ascends into heaven, then he's going to send the spirit down, right? So you can always see that the spirit is with Jesus and sometimes the spirit is moving Jesus and sometimes Jesus is moving the spirit. So it's kind of a weird um, thing that's going on there, but uh, pay attention to those verses because they are kind of interesting that the spirit comes to him and then it drives him, but then he gives the spirit and then he sends the spirit. Right. We say in the creed that the Spirit uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son. All right. So this is kind of an uh, interesting relationship between the Son and the Spirit that's going on here. Okay, And he was in the wilderness 40 days. And 40 in the Bible is the number of trial. Right, It's the number of testing. This is 40 years in the wilderness, uh, 40 days of the flood. Uh, what other 40s are there? I mean, 40 days of Jesus' death. Um, Fasting in the wilderness. Any other 40s? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. further. Is there a certain reason why most of the time the Spirit is mentioned, it's Holy Spirit? And here it's just Spirit. Um, I'd have to go and look and see. We use the term Holy Spirit a lot as kind of a proper name. In the Bible, he goes by a lot of different names. Um, in John's gospel, he's almost never the spirit or the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete, which means like helper or comforter, or, um, it can even mean like friend or, uh, uh, what's the other one? Um, like intercessor or, uh, what's the term I'm thinking of? Um, yeah, the... The, anyway the word paraclete literally means like the the one who walks alongside so um, there's a couple different names in the New Testament for the spirit I'd have to go and look and count and see okay how many times are the different ones used but um, yeah it seems like in the early church if I if you think about the book of Acts it's I want to say they say the Holy Spirit more often right and that's definitely the proper name because that when Jesus institutes baptism, he says Holy Spirit, right? Yeah, and even, well, they say Father, Son, Father, and Holy Son, Spirit. Holy Spirit. It's right. Like the holy it's holy, it's just different. Yeah. Oh, right. well, it is kind of interesting too. Yeah. That, that you don't say Holy Father, Holy Son, and Holy Spirit. Never thought about that. Um, I mean, they are all holy, right? Because uh, that's literally what makes God. God is his holiness. All right. Um, good question. I'll have to think about that some more. So uh, I, I don't really have an answer though, so I apologize. <laughs> um, you've stumped me. Uh, where are we? Oh yeah, 40 days. So it's in the wilderness, 40 days, tempted by Satan. Um, notice it doesn't bring up fasting here, which is kind of interesting. That's uh, in the other gospels. But what, okay, this is something, you know, that 3% of Mark that's unique. We have one of those instances here. This is uh, the wild beast, and he was with the wild beast. That's not in the other gospels. Um, and this is very interesting. I mean, I, I, I kind of like this because um, – Where is my note about wild beast here? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, this is great. In uh, Matthew's gospel, remember what um, Bible verse Satan tempts Jesus with when he tempts him to, to jump off the, the temple? It's Psalm 91 about, uh, aren't the angels going to protect you? They're going to guard you lest you strike your foot against a stone. Right? Y'all remember that in Jesus, in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew? Um, So in Psalm 91, that's verse 12. In their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Verse 13 goes like this in Psalm 91. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. And there's a uh, there's actually even more discussion of wild beast in Psalm 91 than that. You can go read the whole thing. Um, but there seems to be this connection between Jesus temptation and Psalm 91, right? His temptation in the wilderness and Psalm 91. But what's interesting is that he actually fulfills Psalm 91. Right? He's with the wild beast and they don't kill him. And the angels do minister to him. Right. And Matthew says this after you get through the temptation of Jesus at the end of Matthew in Matthew four, at the end of the temptation of Jesus, after Satan goes away, then the angels come and minister to him. Mark just includes it with the as if it's happening the whole time and the angels ministered to him. But I love this idea that he's with the wild beast. Right. And that's that means he's in danger. Right. Like wild beasts are hungry. They're going to eat humans. Right. If you're with the wild beast. If you're out in the wilderness, you're with the wild beast, they're probably going to hurt you, right? They're probably going to try and eat you. Um, and unless you can protect yourself or you can keep them away somehow, right? So, But um, the other thing that's brought up to my mind too is um, Isaiah chapter 11. And I mean, I think Isaiah is on Mark's mind to some degree here, potentially, that um, Isaiah chapter 11 has that, that prophecy of all the different kinds of wild, the predators and the preys lying down together, right? When everything is made right at the end of the world, whenever in, in the eschaton, that the wolf and the lamb are gonna lie down together, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion, the infant's gonna play in the cobra's nest, all of that stuff. Um, and in some ways, this is a fulfillment of that, right? And, and, in, and in one sense, Jesus is the lamb, right? Jesus is... Uh, it, the the perfect child, right? He is um, the prey who the predator does not attack, right? And uh, you, you kind of get that, right? That he's with the wild beast, but they, they're able to lie down together, right? Um, so, I don't know, just something interesting to think about. He doesn't, uh, Mark is the only one who includes this, that he was with the wild beast in the wilderness. But... um if you can just kind of picture that in your mind, right? That Jesus lies down at night in his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness, and then he's just like sleeping next to a bunch of lions and wolves and and coyotes and whatnot, right? It's a pretty good picture. Someone should paint that. I don't think I've never seen a church artwork of that, right? So um, there we go. I just where's where's Stacy? I gotta talk to her. All right. Um, what what time is it? It's probably – oh, yeah, perfect. Okay, that's a good stopping point. So I don't want to get too far. All right. uh, Like I said, it's going to take us a a minute to get through Chapter 1. But um, any final questions before we we close for the day? Yeah, Barb. So is Jesus' baptism – I probably should know this, but is his baptism the beginning of his ministry? Yeah. Yeah, his baptism is the beginning of his ministry. Yeah. And that's true across the Gospels too. Okay. Yeah. His baptism and, and fasting. So before that, he was just doing him. carpentry, okay. getting lost in the temple, okay. doing his thing. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we pray that you would bless our worship today together. Uh, we thank you for the good news about jesus and that we've been baptized into him and that he was baptized to fulfill righteousness for us we pray that you would always remind us of our baptisms that we are your children and that we have the inheritance that you give to your son uh, to us also eternal life we pray that you would remind us of these things uh, continue to bless us continue to keep us safe And we pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.